Hi everyone, welcome to Her Story. This is episode three and I'm really excited that my guest today is Tierney McLean. Tierney just graduated with her master's degree from the Eastman School of Music. She is not only a professional trumpet player, but she is also an educator as well. She has her own private trumpet studio and she is just such an insightful and kind-hearted person and I really enjoyed my conversation that I had with her today and I know you will enjoy it too. So please have a listen and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. My name is Tierney McLean, and I am a professional trumpet player, teacher, and arts administrator. I grew up in Rochester, New York, pursued my bachelor's degree at the University of Cincinnati's College Conservatory of Music in trumpet performance, and just recently got my master's degree in trumpet performance from Eastman School of Music. Woohoo! She just graduated! Yay! Global pandemic. Woohoo! Yes, beautiful. Okay, so why trumpet? Why did you choose that instrument? I'm not sure I chose the trumpet. I think it chose me, actually, if we're being perfectly honest. When it came time to choose an instrument in, I think it was the end of third grade going into fourth grade, I wanted to play the trumpet and nobody could talk me out of it. And unfortunately, they were already full. They had enough trumpet players that they had you know, too many. They didn't need any more. So by the time they got to the M's in the alphabet, trumpet was out. So they put me on euphonium and told me it was a big trumpet. And my, my teacher would actually bribe me in lessons that if I practiced euphonium enough for the week, he would let me play trumpet at the end of the lesson. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, after a full year of that, it became clear that trumpet was the one for me. So I ended up switching in fifth grade to trumpet. Awesome. Growing up, and obviously, you know, I'm a trumpet player as well. So we play a very, you know, male dominated instrument. Oftentimes we are outnumbered. So what were those, you know, experiences like being in middle school and high school and, and playing a male dominated instrument? Were they mainly negative, positive, grab bag? So I think it's, it's kind of a mixed bag for me because, you know, these, these social problems of, you know, sexism and, and racism to be intersectional for a moment. They're, they're much larger than just a simple yes or no question. Yeah. And so the prevailing cultural attitudes in any given geographical location will certainly influence how we see these things manifest. And so for me in Rochester, New York, you know, in the Northeast, which is more of a liberal leaning, not so culturally entrenched area, it's I didn't feel too much of this sexism or male dominated field. I really didn't experience too much of that as a kid. There was, there was one moment in my life, which I'm still not sure if it was entirely a sexist moment. I'm not sure it had to do with my gender or just because I was an awkward kid. In sixth grade, I was being bullied quite a bit in the trumpet section. And I was, you know, one of 50 trumpet players in the middle school band, you know, all the way in the back row with the percussion. And I don't even know, I don't remember honestly what I was being bullied about, but I did come home from school one day with a dent in my trumpet from the kids who were picking on me 
And my mom saw that she had paid for the instrument and she was quite upset about this dent. So she asked me what happened. And I was, I was honest with her. I told her what happened that one of the kids had knocked it out of my hand and it had gotten dented. You know, my mom is a, is a strong, fierce woman. And so she actually emailed the band director, who was also a female, and explained the situation that I was being bullied in the back row. And unbeknownst to me, because I did not know that this email was sent, I ended up in the first trumpet section the next day in band, and I knew that I had done nothing to deserve this, and that I better get my button gear and practice uh, <laughs> in order to deserve this. So it kind of, kind of flung me into trumpet playing far more than I would have been otherwise, and that, that might have been a move that saved my career. And as I say, I'm not sure if that was related to gender or just me being an awkward 13-year-old. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was she your only female band director growing up or did you have others? And, you know, what was that dynamic like, you know, having a male band director versus a female band director? It's, it's a little difficult to say because as a, as a kid, I wasn't really thinking about it. Yeah. She was my only female band director that I ever saw. Later on, I had an orchestra director who was a female, which was pretty awesome. But as far as like actual public school, she was the only female music teacher that I ever saw. Yeah, I didn't think about it too much then because the trumpet section was pretty mixed. It was about 50-50 male-female. And so, like I say, growing up in the Northeast, this wasn't really a thing that was on my radar until, you know, college, until later in my life. Yeah. Um, when did you, did you study privately and when did you start doing that? So I was actually very fortunate. My mother was incredibly musical and she sought out private lessons for me um, from day one. So starting in third grade, I was awesome. private lessons. Yeah, she was awesome. She is probably the single most influential person in my life that I could point to for my success. My mother was awesome. All of those private teachers that I had through the year for trumpet were male. Yeah. And so fast forward into college, you started at CCM mm-hmm. and then you moved to Eastman. So how are those experiences for you? So, you know, Eastman is, is again in Rochester, it's in my hometown. So let's, let's focus on CCM though, because that's, a, that's an eight hour drive, it's 500 miles away, and there's some good cultural change that happens by the time you get to Cincinnati. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know the geography of Cincinnati, it's only one river away from Kentucky. So as I say, this is, you know, sexism is a social thing and the prevailing cultural attitudes of a place play into that largely. And so Cincinnati is kind of on the, on the edge of the Bible Belt, starting to get into more southern areas, more conservative areas. And at CCM was the first time I ever really started to experience sexism or feel like I was out of place as a female. Mm. That was kind of the first time that showed up on my radar. And so it kind of hit me like a train. I was not ready for that. I had not grown up in that. I had not been told to prepare for that. Nobody ever mentioned that when I was auditioning for colleges. No one told me to look at that or think to ask those questions. So this was all just a big surprise to me when I was a Kugel freshman. I've got two stories, well, three stories from college that will sum this up, I guess, succinctly. The first one that I was a clueless freshman in brass rep class and the professor asked me how many symphonies Mahler had written. And I think this might have been like the first week of school. And I said, 10 symphonies. I was pretty sure that I had listened to Mahler 10. And the real answer was nine and a half. And so that professor laughed at me. He got the rest of the class to laugh at me. 
and then informed me that it was his goal to make me turn purple with embarrassment by the end of the year because as I you know, had gotten the wrong answer, my face started to turn red. I was a little embarrassed. Yeah. And he just took that and ran with it. And that was when you were a freshman. That was, yeah, like the first week of freshman year. I don't know that many freshmen that know that it's actually 9.5, you know? I feel like the, the major nerds may know by the time they're freshmen in college, but I don't think I knew that. Yeah, well, it's, it was quite a shock to me. I had never had that kind of interaction with an authority figure, with a teacher, with a professor, with anyone. So I was kind of put out by that, like, oh man, maybe a horrible mistake coming to music school. I persevered and, and we got through it and it was okay. The second story was, I think also my freshman year, might have been sophomore year, I was taking a lesson with somebody and in this lesson, the, the professor found out that I played, you know, a certain size mouthpiece and decided that it was just far too small. And it's worth noting that there is quite a physical difference between me and this teacher that I'm, you know, on the smaller side of humanity, five foot four, not too big. And he was quite a large human, you know, definitely more than six feet tall. And so we're, we're very different builds. Yeah. And he just looked at the size on my mouthpiece and decided that it was too small. And so he decided to do a, a blind mouthpiece trial. And so he pulled out a bunch of different mouthpieces. He told me he would put my mouthpiece in the pile, told me to close my eyes and that we were gonna try, you know, the different mouthpieces. I like play, in, play a Clark II exercise, you know, with each one in and see which one I like and, and to be honest with my feedback. And so as we're going along, you know, mouthpiece after mouthpiece, he's putting them back down on the little, the rag that's next to us as we're playing. And, you know, I'm going through like, oh, that one's kind of okay. Oh, that one's not real great. I don't like that one. And I get to one and I say, that is my mouthpiece. That feels like home base. That feels really good. That one's mine. He says, okay. He puts it down on the rag. He hands me another one. And I play this one and it's just, it feels like a bathtub, you know, like mm. I'm pretty sure he handed me a tube of mouthpiece. It was awful. <laughs> and so I, I tell him as much as like, I don't like this one. I think it's too big. And I yeah. hear him playing as he puts the mouthpiece on the music stand. And the rest have been going on the floor with the, with the little spit rag. But this one clangs on the music stand. And so I make note of that in my head because I've got my eyes closed. This is supposed to be a blind thing. And we do a couple more mouthpieces. And at the end, he says, okay, well, open your eyes. And he picks up the mouthpiece off of the music stand. And he says, this is the one that you identified as yours. Oh. And that's just a blatant lie. Yeah. Know that that was the big one that I said, I hate it. I don't like it. It's way too big. And he tells me, this is the one that you liked. And so I look at it and sure enough, the sizing on this mouthpiece is far larger than mine. And he says, well, you know, why don't you just, you know, take this with you, you know, try it for a week, see, see how it goes. Just try it. And so I took it to rehearsal with me, you know, later that day. And the director of, of the wind ensemble pulled me aside afterwards and he said, you know, is everything okay in your playing right now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying a new mouthpiece. I'm going to see how it goes. And he's like, yeah, you know, keep trying it. But uh, if you want to play the old mouthpiece in my rehearsals, that's cool too. Mm. So that was, that was the moment that it clicked into place in my head that maybe I shouldn't be trusting teachers and people I take lessons with blindly anymore. Perhaps they don't all have my best interests at heart. Yeah. 
later on in my life, I revisit that story and I think maybe it wasn't malicious. You know, maybe that was just truly, he was trying to help me because he thought a bigger mouthpiece would serve me better. Yeah. But you never know the whole story with people and you have to kind of listen to what your students say to you, what they feel and what they perceive because you're not living in their body. They are. Yeah. And I think with, you know, especially when you're, when you're teaching a brass player and, you know, we're all like equipment geeks and everything like that. And that's, you know, what everybody talks about all the time. But I I feel like some teachers, they kind of, you know, have a one size fits all sort of mentality. This works with this student. This is going to work with every student. And they have their own little programmatic way of doing things. And they do it with every student over and over and over again. And that's when that issue of individualizing instruction and figuring out what works for every individual student is kind of thrown to the wayside. They're not, you know, really considering that. They're just saying, oh, this worked for so-and-so and so-and-so, so it must work for tyranny. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that is such a dangerous concept because humanity is so wide and so varied, not just physically, but mentally. So, you know, right now we're talking about mouthpieces that, you know, the big mouthpiece that works for him may not work for me because literally we are different size humans. But also, you know, my jaw may be structured differently or my mm. teeth or my lips or whatever. But that's not even touching the emotional side of things that mentally, emotionally, verbally, what works for one student may not for the next. And I feel like at the university level, that's certainly an issue, as you say, with the cookie cutter. We have this one program that we follow. And if it doesn't work for you, too bad. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think the, the teachers that get stuck kind of in that old fashioned mentality, you know, keep doing that and they're not as adaptable to change. Yeah, well, it's just certainly not inclusive to the diversity of the world. And yeah, you know, now as as a teacher myself, I try to to catch myself when I do that. If I start pursuing a path that is not working for a student, I try to be receptive to that. And then, you know, how can I change? How can I make this work for them? So you mentioned your own studio. So how how is that dynamic being a teacher, being a female brass player and having your own studio? And I know you are pretty much involved in a lot of music programs all over the Rochester area. And so you kind of have, you know, your own little monopoly on uh, Rochester students, which is great. It's awesome. And I know you're such a great teacher. And so how how is that dynamic being a, a female brass player? Because I know you identify as a female but, you know, some people when, you know, they sign up for trumpet lessons, they may be expecting someone completely different. I know I've had that before because my name is gender neutral. And so people sign up for lessons with me and then they walk in and they're like super surprised. They see this short five foot four woman and they were expecting, you know, someone different. So have you had any experiences like that? And how do you resolve those and make them, you know, a more positive outlook on who you are and what you are as a teacher. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Tierney is a is a gender neutral name because we haven't met too many Tierneys in the world. It's kind of a unique name. So people don't always know that I'm a female. That that more comes up in gigs than it does in teaching. Yeah. Because um, with teaching, you know, you usually get a word of mouth recommendation from someone or they have looked you up on the school website and seen your bio and seen your headshot and as you say, I present female and identify as female. So that's, that's usually pretty obvious to people that, you know, I'm a female and they know what they're getting. Yeah. I did have one student who I inherited from a, a male teacher and he, he passed this student along to me with a recommendation, word of mouth. And that student 
seemed a little hesitant with me. You know, it took us a little time to get a good rapport going. And so I could tell there was something kind of underneath the surface with us. But he was a little hesitant to buy into what I was saying. But we eventually did have a playing breakthrough. And a couple months later, he shared with me that he didn't know if I would have a whole lot to teach him. And this, mm. is, this was an adult student of mine. He didn't know if I would have a lot to teach him because in his day, women didn't really play the trumpet. And so he wasn't sure that I would have a lot to say. And, and I respect him more than I can tell you because he owned up to that. He realized his bias and then he told me about it and we had a good laugh. And he said, I'm so glad that I got to study with you because you proved me wrong. You proved that bias wrong. And now I know better. Yeah. And so to me, that's kind of the, like the best possible way that could have played out, but it took a little bit of, a little bit of patience, a little bit of treading carefully, and then some sort of breakthrough where we did, you know, get him up to the high note and get the endurance going before he kind of really trusted that I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And that's against the backdrop of me studying at Eastman, you know, which is no, no school to sneeze at. And so the, the credentials didn't really so much matter as the results in that moment that I could get him to play the way he wanted to play. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as teachers, sometimes we kind of have to overcompensate ourselves a little bit and, you know, prove that, hey, I can do this just as well as any male teacher. I know what I'm talking about. For some people that may come across as, you know, we're know-it-alls or whatever, but we have to present ourselves in, you know, as professional as possible and as knowledgeable as possible because sometimes people will question how much we know based upon just our gender. Yeah. And so that's that's another interesting point that I've brought up the the cultural social aspect of this with like location. But I yeah. also think, you know, age has has something to do with these perceptions as well. Because I've never had a child student mention about, you know, surprise that I am a woman or anything of the sort. But I also think that's because, you know, in, in grade school, middle school, high school, there's a much more equitable split between teachers, maybe mm. not particularly in music, but, you know, when you walk into English class or math class, your odds are pretty good that you have encountered lots of female teachers. And so the, the children, I'm using that, too, that term loosely, the children are, are much more okay with this than the older populations. And so yeah. when we talk about these, these are big, complex issues of underrepresentation I think it's really important to represent yourself across all boards, across all ages. And of course, that starts with kids. When they grow up, they will have seen representative, representative teachers all through their life, hopefully. But for now, we're just kind of still winning over hearts and minds everywhere we go. Yeah, definitely. And not only do you have your own studios, but you know you also play professionally. So what have those experiences been like? I know you've subbed with the RPO before and you've done things like that. So can you tell me just a little bit about those experiences were like for you? So my, my story actually starts, I was studying at CCM and I won an internship with the Wagon Wheel Theater in Warsaw, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they put on a bunch of shows every summer just back to back. And it's, it's pretty brutal, if we're being honest, just mercilessly pounding your face into the trumpet that you're rehearsing for the next show as you're still playing the performance yep. of, the, of the current one. And I, I actually did that for three summers, played, I don't know, 120 some odd shows with them or 120 performances with them. And I, I loved it. It was so great. I had so much fun doing it. And uh, it's worth noting that the pit in that theater is entirely below the stage. You cannot be seen. 
and my name, as we said, is a little bit gender ambiguous. You don't necessarily know by looking. And so one night as I was exiting the pit, I was climbing back up this, this staircase after a performance, there was a, a gentleman sitting right in front of those stairs, like, like looking for somebody, waiting for someone. And uh, the guitar player was actually carrying my trumpet case up the stairs for me. He was just, you know, being a nice guy. He offered to carry the case and I wasn't going to say no, you know, sure, carry my case. Yeah. <laughs> Less work for you. Go ahead. <laughs> so I, I come up the stairs, you know, the guy's still looking for something in the pit and I, I stand there for a second and the guitar player comes up carrying the trumpet case and this guy launches into the are you the trumpet player? That was so great. Oh my gosh, you sounded so awesome. And the guitar player, you know, he's an upstanding citizen. He goes, oh, well, that's, that's great. You know, thank you so much. But actually, she's the trumpet player. And he kind of makes a big deal out of handing me the trumpet case. And so I, I take it back from him. And I'm turning to address this, this guy, you know, the, he had been in the audience for the show. And he looks at me and he goes, you're the trumpet player? And there's this really awkward pause. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm Tierney. You know, you know, thank you for the kind words. And he just, he looks so shocked. And if I had had a spatula, I could have peeled his jaw off the floor. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, wow, you play almost as well as some boys. Wow. And that, that moment when I got demoted from sounding so great, so good, that he had to seek me out to give me a compliment to sounding almost as good as some boys was kind of earth shattering for me that that is how my gender can be perceived in music. Yeah. So that's, that was one of the, probably the most blatant example of sexism that I can come up with in the, in the professional world. You know, most of them are, are just small little microaggressions as we would call them, but that one was, was pretty blatant. And yeah, uh, that's big. I, I like to laugh about that one. It's a good story, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and, and I've had that happen to me countless, countless times, playing pits and stuff like that, and, you know, they see you walking out with the case, and then they act like you've conquered some major beast playing your instrument, and that it's when, you know, the guy trumpet player walks by, it's like, oh, nice job. But then when they see you, or and and it's not even necessarily for me, not always just my gender, it's the size, I'm kind of short, tiny person, and how old I am, if I'm playing, I'm only 22, so if I'm playing in a group of people that are 10 plus years older than me, I'm seen as, you know, the baby in the group. It's kind of interesting how people's perspective and how they, how they react at the end of a performance can be starkly different between you and, and someone else based upon those factors, and yeah, I've, I've had very similar experiences to that where people act like I did something impossible. Like anybody can play trumpet. <laughs> yeah. Just like in the movie Ratatouille, anybody can cook. Yeah, exactly. Anybody can play trumpet. It doesn't matter what you look like, you can play it. So it's it's crazy how, how people's perspectives change. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, you know, the media and the things that we see from a very young age. Because I've read studies where by second grade, kids already have a perspective of gender association with instruments. And a lot of them haven't really been exposed to live orchestras or anything yet. Or, you know, they haven't gone through the instrument selection process for their band or their orchestra programs, but they already have this association in their brain. 
And it's crazy to think about. There are people that are never involved in music professionally, but they still know, oh, trumpet's a boy instrument, flute is a girl instrument. It's like, where is this coming from? It's crazy. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Where is this coming from? Because I think that's kind of the, isn't that the question? It's the (laughs) biggest piece in the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, the female or the trumpet? So my answer to that, you know, having, having had these interesting life experiences where I wasn't really even aware, didn't really think of trumpet as, as a male instrument until college. I think, I think the answer lies a lot in our language that we use as trumpet players, as teachers, as musicians. You know, that trumpet is a, is a long distance signaling outdoor hunting war instrument, right? That is our-, our Yeah, like the history instrument. behind it, yeah. And so when you think of loud outdoor signaling, hunting, those are all typically male traits, right? And I don't mean to be exclusive when I say that. I just mean like socially, when we think of those traits, we think male more than we think female. Yeah, because, you know, the history and women weren't allowed to be in the military for such a long time or hunting wasn't considered a female's job, that history context plays into our social context in modern times. Yeah. And, and, you know, women were involved in music, but only in the home, you know, parlor music with keyboard in the home, right? That was, that was the whole thing. And so with trumpet being such a loud, obnoxious outdoor kind of instrument, we didn't really get into trumpet for quite a while. And in fact, the, uh, the glass ceiling, so to speak, in symphony orchestras is still very much in place for trumpet that, female trumpet teachers are starting to get more common, female trumpet professors starting to show up, professional performers starting to show up, but in the orchestral realm, we're still very much underrepresented. Yeah. You know, the question is why, you know, where did this come from? Now we know the history, but how did this happen? And I would guess that it has a lot to do with the language we use as trumpet players. I mentioned the the bigger is better concept. And statistically on average, males tend to be larger humans than females. They're mm-hmm. taller. And so if you've got an instrument that seems to depend on bigger is better, well, of course, the bigger gender is going to look more well-suited to that instrument. Yeah. But also, females are socialized, usually, typically, generalizing, to be smaller, to take up less space, and to be quieter than boys or males. So when you have an instrument that is loud, especially in the beginning as you're learning air control, I think that is something that really gets in the way. Females are hesitant to do that, especially with the way we talk about it. You know, if I had a a nickel for every time I heard a band director, you know, give me loud, give me power, blow harder, make it bigger. Yeah. Those are all very familiar phrases to us as trumpet players. And I think it, it scares off a lot of prospective female trumpet players even now. Yeah, we have kind of like an imposter syndrome constantly. And I'm not going to out who this person was, but one of the music schools that I auditioned at for my undergrad, so I was in high school still, I walked up, the audition was in the trumpet studio. I walked up to the door. The person before me was in there, was playing, sounded great. So that was already making me nervous. And this giant man comes out and he's like six foot five, probably like 250 plus pounds, really big dude. And he was, you know, he was auditioning to be a doctoral student. So he really wasn't 
in competition with me or anything, but it already made me nervous, like hearing how great he was playing and everything. And so this giant man comes out the door when he's done and I'm standing there and I'm looking up at him and he was just like, good luck. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. You sounded great. And then the trumpet teacher comes to the, to the doorway and he goes, well, isn't this cute? Not, oh, welcome, nice to see you, come on in. Even if he just said, you ready, here we go, let's go, time for your audition. The first words out of his mouth are, well, isn't this cute? And I'm already nervous to be playing for these people and everything. And I've heard microaggressions and I've experienced misogynistic comments, you know, my entire life. But in, in that setting, my heart sank to my toes. And if anything, I just got really angry. And I was like, I don't even want to go to the school now anyway. So (laughs) it doesn't really matter how I play. It kind of, the positive was it got rid of my nerves, but the negative was that was my first impression of the teacher. That was my, frankly, first impression of the school. And so it really set a sour tone. And it was fascinating to me because, you know, I didn't play my audition, it went fine. I left and there were a bunch of people in the studio that were like milling around and some of the the people in the studio were female. And I said, if he's making that comment to me and he doesn't even know who I am, what is he saying to his actual students? That kind of frightened me a little bit. That was a crazy experience. Well, that brings up an interesting point. And this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately that there is no physical disadvantage to being female in terms of playing trumpet. There's, there is none to be found. But there is a huge mental, emotional, social disadvantage. And I just, I can't quite get over how big the consequences of that are. Right? Yeah. You know, the obvious one is like, well, you don't get recommended to gigs or people look at you and see that you're a female and then they you know, don't call you or don't want you to teach them or whatever. But things like that, like your story, are so much more insidious that you had a chance to go in there and play to the best of your abilities. And you had no physical reason not to. You only had a mental reason not to. And he gave you that reason. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's just so heartbreaking to me that there was no reason for you not to succeed big time there except for him. And he just got so in your way. Yeah. And, and I don't even know if he was just commenting on my size or my gender or what it was, but just the, the condescending tone in his voice. And I feel like sometimes when your generations are moved from someone and things like that, it even makes it more alienated when people say things like that. Cause you're like, wow. Um, thanks. <laughs> What a lesson for all of us, though, in terms of language, that we might be saying things that we deem harmless, right? Maybe he was just trying to come out and, like, break the ice with you. like Make a joke. Yeah. Make a joke or, like, you know, make you feel comfortable, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm not in his head. But maybe that was truly a well-meaning comment. But how careful we all need to be, not just in terms of gender, but also, you know, bigger intersectionally in terms of all genders, in terms of all races, and Mm -hmm. how could my comments be perceived, and how is this coming off, because you don't want to be the reason that somebody bombs an audition because you made them uncomfortable. Like, that's awful. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. And in my teaching experience, I try to make sure that I teach every single kid individualize their instruction. But at the same time, I'm, I'm also cognizant of where my pre- privilege is as a white woman and how some of my students aren't very privileged at all. And, you know, you have to, you have to be aware of your students' backgrounds and where they're coming from, and especially if they're in a minoritized population. I think it's important that you stay educated and you also use that in your teaching as well. One of the biggest things that I've found that helps with that is to just ask more questions rather than assuming. Mm, yeah. Um, that's another thing that I see in a lot of teachers is that they just kind of assume that they know what the problem is mm-hmm. when they may not. And I think we've all been on the receiving end of that as students where your teacher like has an idea, they think they know what's wrong and they run with it. And you're just kind of like, yeah, no that's actually my valve got stuck. Like that wasn't the issue that you think it was. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of kind of, you know, you're in an authoritative position. So you got a little bit of a complex going on, like, oh, I need to find the solution right now. And teachers feel like they can't be vulnerable with a student and ask. I would say it's humility. Yeah. That you don't know. And you can't ask your student, like, what happened there? That was a little interesting. That doesn't usually happen to you. What's up? Mm-hmm. And you never know what the answer is going to be. You might get some real interesting answers because I have from students, you know, I had, I had a girl one time who just, you know, she was usually so focused and so on top of it. She's one of my best students. I love working with her because no matter what you assign her, she'd come back in and she'd have it just on lock. It was amazing. And so she came in one time and she just seemed real distracted. Like she wasn't herself. Yeah. So I just kind of, I stopped the lesson, put my trumpet down. I said, okay, what's, you know, what's going on? You don't seem quite yourself today. And that's, you know, that is a problem that I, as a teacher cannot solve. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's wrong with her trumpet playing because she's just not mentally engaged. And she just, she just started crying. And, you know, there were some problems at home, some stuff that she told me. And that was something that I never could have solved as a trumpet teacher that I could only solve as a human. Exactly. (laughs) And I wish that more teachers took the time to engage with their students on a human level Mm. and deviate from the cookie cutter, you know, today is the day that we play this etude. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, it's beneficial to have a diverse trumpet studio in your school and to get those different perspectives, especially people that are coming from different backgrounds and experiences and those sorts of things. And that's why, I mean, our trumpet studio at Eastman isn't super racially diverse, but I think we have a pretty considerable number of female trumpet players in comparison to some other schools, especially at the master's level. Yeah. So, and I think that's, that's really great because I feel like in studio class and those things, we're able to voice our opinion and our perspective and not feel super ostracized for our gender. And I think that's one of the, the benefits of being in a community like that and, you know, seeing other people like you. Definitely. Representation matters and it, it matters on every level, whether they're your peers or your mentors or, I mean, it, it matters. And so having some numbers is certainly a good thing. Also, just to keep any offenses in check. Yeah. But, you know, if you are the only female in a room and something happens, you may not have the power or the authority or the comfort to call out that thing and say, hey, that was really not okay. Mm. But if there's, you know, 50% females in a room, 
chances are, number one, that offense may not happen in the first place because they know they're going to get called out for it. But number two, if it does happen, one of the other females may call it out. And if nobody else calls it out for you, you have a better chance of having the comfort and the authority to do that now because the other you know, half of the room is going to see it probably from your perspective because that is something they're sharing with your gender. Yeah, and I think another important thing to mention is you are in one of those situations where you are the only that, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to be who you are and speak your opinion and things. And there are, um, there are a lot of resources available online, different communities. I know there's a Facebook group for female, trans and non-binary brass players that was recently started and, and how beneficial that group has been for people to share their stories and that sort of thing. And that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast as well is just let people talk, let people, you know, say, this is my perspective on things and this is what I've experienced. And, and these are the still current issues that are still going on and how we're trying to combat them. So having a Facebook group like that or organizations like the Women's Brass Conference and those sorts of things, just having the resources for people to engage with others that are like them are super important. And Eastman's Gender Equity Conference, first gender equity conference in music at Eastman this year in 2020, before COVID. Yeah. And, uh, that, was, that was quite a thing because it was pretty all-encompassing and all-inclusive across all instruments, across all genders. It was really quite, really quite something. It was awesome. Yeah. And you and I both presented there. And so I think we are, as a music community, starting to make some strides towards making a space for people to be heard. And that is really, really important, but also keeping it focused on, on the fixes. So, you know, we've, we've got these disparities and the fixes, more representation, more space to talk about it, more trust in these stories that are coming forward. But also, you know, on a, on a personal level, this is my, my anecdote, you know, how did this happen? How did we get so misrepresented in trumpet is the language that we use to speak about trumpet. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a moving forward perspective from where I stand, I think it's much more about being mindful of the language that we use, that trumpet is not just loud, bombastic, powerful, balls to the walls, loud, all yeah. those gendered terms, but also elegant and beautiful because that exists in music too. And you can certainly talk about balls to the walls loud. Yeah. Using those terms. As much as trumpet plays loud, we also play soft, (laughs) which nobody talks about. Yeah. Even if what you want is balls to the walls loud, right? That's okay. Pretend I'm a conductor and that is what I want. And that's the phrase that pops into my head. What else could I say that is maybe not so gendered and not so intimidating to those lacking in balls? Yeah, because heads up, we don't have balls. (laughs) Well, you know, but like, what can you say? You could say as loud as you can play. (laughs) Yeah. Totally non-gendered. Or even using musical terms. I want to hear more fortissimo. Yep. That's not gendered. Right? You can (laughs) conduct that way. You can do the big hand asking for more. You can say more crescendo. You could say, I need more shimmer on that sound. I need... You could get, go with colors, you could go with textures, all these things are not gendered. And, and I, I wish kind of through and through on the music field, conductors, teachers, performers, 
music critics, I wish we all used less gendered language because it would benefit everyone, you know, not just female brass players, but also male flute players and, you know, going the other way. So that's, yeah. that's kind of my fix and my focus on how do we make this better, that as a teacher, I try to be very, very mindful of the language that I use. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's, that's a big issue that, you know, would be an easy fix. Just change your language. Well, and there's, you know, to, to bring this to kind of modern relevance here with all of the, the discussions about, you know, the civil rights movement continuing, all of the racial inequalities that are happening and, and you know, defund the police, this whole movement that has popped up. I've seen a ton of things talking about different phrases that actually have, you know, racist origins. Mm. is that we incorporate into our everyday vocabulary that we may not know are racist yeah that's got a great parallel to sexism right you may have things in your language that you may not think are sexist or racist but as soon as someone points them out to you now your excuse of ignorance is bliss is gone exactly not if you choose not to start speaking more gender neutral more racially neutral or at least avoiding the super racist phrases then you have made the wrong choice. And so with, with the more space that is appearing in classical music for, for all genders to, to be present and be heard, this is something that I would love to see. I would love people to choose different language. Yeah, and it's, it's so easy now to, to educate yourself on those things. Can't use the excuse that I don't have the book on that anymore. And especially if someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, this has this connotation to it. You need to get rid of that. Now you're just being ignorant if you continue to use it, like you said. And I think that's a major turning stone for a lot of people. The other, the other piece that I will mention as a trumpet player, right? This is specific to trumpet, and I'm sure it happens to other instruments, but specifically for us, there tends to be, you know, a boatload of us. There might be 30 trumpet players in an average middle school band if you've got a, a sizable music program. And we tend to get kind of sardined in. Mm-hmm. And so talking about, you know, where does this misaligned representation come from? Why aren't the numbers more equitable? I think, I think this is one of those reasons that everybody gets sardined in. And as we talked about earlier, there's no physical disadvantage to being a female trumpet player, only mental, emotional, and social ones. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, your average middle schooler, they're going through puberty, their chest may be developing, and that's usually a very self-conscious time for Mm -hmm. adolescent women. And so if you are in band class and you are sardined in with 30 people of of mixed gender and you don't have any room for your elbows and band teacher is telling you to sit up straight, straighten your back and breathe deeply, Mm -hmm. that may cause you some social angst. And that is another point where we start to lose some female trumpet players is because of that fear of bullying or self-consciousness or whatever the case might be. And so that's, that's kind of a, a specific thing, but I think it's something that, again, is a pretty easy fix for us as teachers and band directors and conductors that we could just space the trumpets out into two rows, give everybody a little more room to breathe. Yeah. Maybe we don't lose quite as many young adolescent female trumpet players at that moment. And I think a lot of people don't even, don't even think about that. The physical, you know, we're trying to cram so many kids in a room and they're not thinking about, hey, people need a personal bubble. They need space. 
especially kids that get claustrophobic even just being crammed into a section with that many players and for me I've thought about that because I felt uncomfortable in middle school being crammed in between that many boys. And so I make a point in my bands to spread the trumpets out a little bit more than stereotypically has been done. But that's just because I have consciously had that experience. So I feel like a lot of band directors who have not had that experience aren't actively thinking about how am I seating my kids? How are they placed? Do they feel comfortable where they are? Yeah. And are they going to be able to reach their full potential by breathing in a deep breath, sitting with good posture, on and on and on? Mm-hmm. And you know, if the answer is no, your likelihood of those kids dropping out of band and dropping their instrument is much higher. And that's, that's just such a tragedy because it's such an easy thing to fix for us. It costs us nothing extra. No extra chairs have to be set up. They just got to be spaced out a little bit more so that they're not all sardined in there feeling self-conscious. Yeah, I completely agree wanted to thank you for coming on and talking with us and sharing your experiences and your stories. It was great having you. Thank you for for making the space for people to be heard and for for asking me to be on. This was really fun. It's really good to talk about these things. So thank you for all of the good work that you're doing for the community. I appreciate that. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. I'll see you, Tierney. Thanks for thanks for talking. Hi, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode of Her Story, please make sure you like and comment on this episode and you also share it with your friends. Please also make sure you're visiting our website as well. I am currently trying to fundraise on a GoFundMe account to make sure these episodes are able to stay online on different platforms and to hopefully be able to own my own website domain. So even if you could spare like $5, that would really help the podcast remain up and going and reaching out to more people. So I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you. Welcome to Her Story. This is episode three, and I'm really excited that my guest today is Tierney McLean. Tierney just graduated with her master's degree from the Eastman School of Music. She is not only a professional trumpet player, but she is also an educator as well. She has her own private trumpet studio, and she is just such an insightful and kind-hearted person, and I really enjoyed my conversation that I had with her today, and I know you will enjoy it too. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks.